with me this morning to the book of Ephesians chapter number 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to begin again this morning in verse number 22. We looked last week at verses 22 through 33 of Ephesians 5, the first installment in a seven-week series from Mother's Day to Father's Day on marriage, family, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want us to focus on this passage again this morning as there is such riches here for us. We essentially asked the question last week of what it takes to make a family, not just the component parts, mother, father, uh, children, parents, husband, wife, that kind of thing, but uh, deeper than that, what, do, what does it look like? What is required? And uh, among those things we discussed were uh, an understanding of our responsibilities within the family. Within each office, there is a set of uh, unique responsibilities associated with each of those offices and each individual that holds one of those offices, husband, wife, children, parents, mother, father, etc. And uh, we talked about the need to understand what uh, expectations are for each of those offices, understanding the expectations of other members of the family so that we might measure up to those expectations so that there might be good understanding within the family. And we talked about the urgent need for Christ in every family. Uh, I, I, you know, I cannot imagine doing marriage and family apart from the work and power of Jesus. I'm not sure that I'll always do it well with Jesus. I can't imagine doing marriage and family without Christ. Certainly this passage underscores the urgent need for Christ in every family. But I want to go go even beyond that in the time that we have this morning and seek to squeeze all the truth we can from the passage that's before us before we move on in the weeks ahead and ask how it is that that we can have more than just a well-maintained family, a family that's functional and held together. That's sort of a win in and of itself, but I would hope that our goal, our desires would go beyond that, to having a marriage and a family that would glorify Jesus. You know, the Bible says that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we are to do all things to the glory of God. And certainly if that's true of the modest things that we eat or drink, those tiny and insignificant aspects of our life, surely marriage and family, which is such a critical part of who we are. It's a part of our identity in some respects. Surely this would be leveraged to bring great glory and honor and praise to the name of Jesus. If you found your way to Ephesians 5 and verse 22, I'd invite you to stand with me out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word. Verse 22, the Bible says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, 
Each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. Children, obey your parents as you would the Lord, because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Obviously, it is our goal as followers of Christ to do everything that we can to bring glory and honor and praise to God. And I'm convinced that in spite of what can sometimes be challenges, we have a great opportunity to glorify Christ with our marriages and our families. I really want that in my marriage, Christ is glorified. And I've, I've seen, observed the force of a marriage enjoyed within the context of God's provision under God's hand and faithful providence and the impact that they can have. Families that walk together in love and grace, patience for one another and, and mercy, that, that has a great bearing. That's tremendously impactful. So often in our generation, we're, we're looking for some great feat we're looking for some monumental moment that changes the course of history when often God is pleased to do his greatest work in the faithful plotting of his people with meager acts of obedience one day to the next. And often there is opportunity for that over the length of our life in marriage and family. Let me give you three ways. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you on the front end, and then we're going to look at these verses together. Three ways that we can glorify Jesus in our marriage and family. Here's the first. We honor the God-given roles of husband and wife. That is, we honor the roles as they are defined in the Scripture. Now, I'm going to say more about this, and I'm going to continue to talk about this particular topic for the next several weeks because I think it is so central to who we are within marriage and family. When I say we honor the God-given roles of husband and wife, I mean by that, I intend by that, we honor the role and responsibility of husband as it is defined in the Scripture, and we honor and we enjoy the, the uh, role of wife as it is defined in the Scripture, and I would go beyond that to say that we honor and we enjoy the role of male and female as it is defined in the Scripture, and we enjoy and we honor the role of, of parent and child as it is defined in the Scripture, mother and father, etc., etc. When we operate within the parameters that God has set for and designed for marriage and family, it is for our good and the well-being of the family as a unit. You cannot find in the Bible a passage that deals with marriage and family that does not have as its foundation the concept of our basic human need for order and for structure within marriage and family. We'll talk more about what that looks like in our time ahead. That was a major focus last week, but we'll not get far from that again this week. The second thing you must do if, you're, if you seek to glorify Christ in your marriage and family is to model your marriage after Jesus' love for the church. 
One of the things that becomes apparent in the conclusion of chapter 5 is that marriage is intended to operate as a living, breathing illustration of the love that Jesus has for the church. So marriage is instituted and becomes an illustration, a model, a parable from God as to how Jesus loves the church. The language of marriage is all over the Bible. In fact, the whole concept of our coming together in a covenant is rooted in the covenant that God has made with his chosen people. We love our wives as Christ loved the church. We love one another as spouses within a marriage as Christ loved the church, as a living, breathing embodiment of the gospel, a gospel whereby Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And the third thing we'll see in our passage is that we are to model our family after Jesus' love for his children. Look to verse 22. Here the Bible says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. If you were with us last week, you'll remember our conversation on how verses 22 through 33 help us to understand better what is intended by verse 21, where there is a call to mutual submission. In fact, verse 21 says, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. As followers of Jesus, we submit one to another. That is, we esteem others more highly than ourselves. We're willing to count the needs or the desires of others as more important than our own. That's the attitude that we're to embrace. Philippians chapter 2 attitude. We take the mind of Christ. We esteem others more highly than ourselves. We're willing to humble ourselves, even as Christ humbled himself, even to the point of death on the cross. Obviously, Jesus deserved better than he received. But the attitude, the mentality, the approach was to esteem others even more highly than himself, and we are to pattern our experience after that. Verses 22 through 33 help us to understand how it is within the family we submit one to another, counting the interest of the other as more uh, important than our own. The first is given in verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, invariably, when I teach this passage, or I could just read this passage, and I look out there, and I see some of you scoundrels leaning over to your wives, and you elbow them, and you have this sort of glim, glib grin on your face as though you've just been given permission to bark orders for the remainder of the day. And I get the jest, right, in so much as that's a joke, nothing wrong with that. She may claw your eyes out when church is over, but I get all that. I'm with you. But that is not at all what verse 22 is about. This is about embracing a certain attitude. This is on some level about the organization and structure of the home, the family, the marriage. But it's certainly not about the establishment of some patriarchal hierarchy that gives you the liberty to bark orders for the remainder of your days. Now, given the way the love of a husband for his bride is described in this passage, 
there are few more atti- few attitudes that are more distasteful or even disgusting than that which would have a husband beating his chest on the basis of Ephesians 5:22, insisting on his rights being observed and his needs being served apart from his humble submission to the needs and desires of his own wife. Because again, our passage says, husbands, you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church. With all of that said, I want to be careful that I don't undermine or void the force of what is required of wives in our passage. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. And if that were not clear enough, the apostle says in verse 24, as the church submits to Christ, so wives are to submit to their husbands in everything or in all things. There is a certain order here. There are responsibilities unique to each office within the body. And we best glorify God when we operate within those previously established parameters. Interestingly enough, while we were here last week and uh, talking through for Uh, at least part of this passage dealing with these issues, the matters of our roles and responsibilities. There was a very prominent Southern Baptist church that was ordaining its first wave of women pastors. And so before I got home, I was inundated with questions and emails and uh, conversations all week long about whether that was something that would ever be entertained here. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? The fact is that will never happen at Longview Point as long as I am your pastor. And that is not because I'm a chauvinist or married to some antiquated ideology. It is because this is a glory of God issue. If we wish to glorify Christ in our life, we must operate within the framework of that image of God in us in which we were created, even as we are. The rejection of our gender, the rejection of the roles and responsibilities assigned to our gender or our office within the family is to operate outside of the image of God in us and to dismiss the glory of God that stands to be exhibited in us when we embrace those roles and responsibilities. This is not about one office or one gender being better or lesser than the other. This is about the full embrace of God's design for the family, God's design for the church. What I'll continue to argue on the basis of this passage and countless others is that God's plan for marriage and family is for our good and not our harm. And so again, woe unto you men who would abuse or distort the teaching of this text. Or even you ladies who would reject it out of hand as oppressive, as as though God were unconcerned with your needs or well-being. There are times, quite frankly, when this is rejected out of hand by ladies. I've, I've been a pastor now for long enough in the South to know that there's a certain personality, certain vibe about Southern Bells, right? Always hear this is the statement that's always made at the funeral as though this is a good thing. You didn't have to wonder about what he or she was thinking about. Like, that's not virtuous, right? There ought to be some mystery about our thoughts at times, you know? And, and there's a certain way about us down south where we have a, a, a way of insisting upon our voice being heard, even when our voice may not be entirely appropriate to the discussion. 
been a pastor long enough to have had the experience of meeting together with a group of men over various issues, at times contentious issues, and coming to a conclusion that all parties were happy with at the end of that conversation, at least until they got home and they found out from their wives how they should have felt about something or what they should have thought about something. Now that is a violation of what is described in our passage. The manner of order, the design that is described in our passage is to be observed within marriage and within the family and within the church. And when it is, it goes well for all who are involved. Now, in verse 25, the real weight, in my estimation, of the passage lands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Note that more press, more ink is given to the concept of husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church that is given in any passage with regards to a wife submitting to the authority of a husband. That is not to say that submission is not a big deal. That is only to say that this responsibility that we bear, husbands and fathers, to love our wives as Christ loved the church is a heavy-duty obligation that ought not be taken lightly. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but provides and cares for it just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. If there is a single characteristic trait, this is confession time for the pastor, y'all ready? If there is a single characteristic trait in me that prevents me from loving my wife as Christ loved the church, that prevents me from bringing my children up in the training and admonition of Jesus without exasperating them in discipline. It is, it is selfishness. It's this notion that creeps up on you in the moment that says, I deserve more than I'm getting, or I don't deserve what I'm receiving. And if I had to guess, I would say this is probably true for a very many of you here this morning, not just men, but women as well. And yet the Bible says that our response to, our interaction with, the love that we exhibit for those under our care as husbands and fathers is not at all selfish. Rather, it is selfless in that Jesus gave himself for the church. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He laid aside the riches and the glories of heaven. He came down and dwelt in our midst. We were all together undeserving. And yet Jesus walked in our midst laying aside the glories of heaven. He gave himself for her. Jesus bore with all of the indignities of life in the here and now. 
There are times when we feel as though we're better than a certain set of circumstances. Jesus was better than the circumstances his earthly ministry afforded him, and yet he would persevere, giving himself over on our account. Jesus bore with the crown of thorns, the rending of the flesh of his back, the pulling of his beard, the nails in his hands and in his feet. Jesus bore the cross up Golgotha's hill. He gave himself for her before a throng of people who cried, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus gave himself for the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for them. Verse 26, we're told that Jesus' agenda and our agenda as husbands is to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. Understand that there is an extent to which we have no control over the righteousness of our family, at least not outside of ourselves. Husbands, you don't control, contrary to what you might believe this morning, your wife, nor do you control, contrary to what you might believe this morning, your children. Now, I've always been of the mind, I can't tell you what my children will or will not do, but I can tell you something about the condition in which they'll do it the next time. I do know that much. But one of the things that's really scary about marriage and family is that there really is no control. And I don't know about you men, but I like to be in control of things, and it kind of makes me go into a panic when I'm not. But what we can do is we can foster an environment in which righteousness thrives. We can create a setting in which unrighteousness is quickly snuffed out. You do this by the tone that you take in conversation within the family. It hurt my heart to have to admit that tone matters in conversation with my wife present in the 930 service, but it does matter. We don't like to admit that it does, but tone does matter. We, we can create a, a certain environment with the words that we speak, the people that we allow in proximity to our family. There, there is an extent to which we protect the sanctity of our home, the sacredness of our family by standing guard over those who have access to our family and under what circumstances they might enjoy that access. By the entertainment that we allow into our home, woe unto us if we are entertained by the sins for which Christ died. The things that are said within our home, the things that we enjoy within our home, the entertainment that we pursue together as a family, the hobbies, the things for enjoyment, the interests that we share together, all of those are a means of fostering a certain environment, an environment in which either righteousness or unrighteousness will thrive. Jesus sought the holiness of the church, and so we are, are to pursue the holiness of our home. And furthermore, in verse 26, we're to be about cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. It's a turn of phrase here in Ephesians 5 to speak of the responsibility. The responsibility unique in some respects to husbands and fathers to see to it that the word of God is read, 
discussed and applied within the home. Now, true enough, there is an extent to which this is a shared responsibility. And I'm thankful that often when the days run long and the schedule is hectic or we're running in different directions, my wife is a faithful practitioner of the reading of the Bible, the discussion of God's Word and its application in the home. And I thank God for that, that in my absence, she is often there in the gap. My children have a responsibility, at least two out of three given their age, to spend time daily in the reading of God's Word, its application, and even the discussion of God's Word. But husbands and fathers, there is a special extent to which we are responsible to see to it that we are fostering an environment in which righteousness thrives by the reading, discussion, and application of God's Word in the home. He sought to make her holy and to cleanse her by the washing of the water of the Word. Now, I'd never noticed this before, but Paul seems to be intentional in his selection of the language that is being used here in our passage. This phrasing, washing of water by the word, comes specifically from Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse number 9. You don't have to turn there. I'll read for you. Here in Ezekiel 16, there is a parable known as the parable of the adulterous wife. And the adulterous wife in the parable is the nation of Israel who has rebelled against God. And the faithful husband, in spite of her adulteries, is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God says, I found the adulterous wife, the one-day adulterous wife, in such a state at her birth that she was merely cast aside. In fact, she was so much cast aside that no one took the trouble to trim the umbilical cord that she was delivered by. She was merely tossed aside. She was not rubbed with salts or washed with water. She was a castaway newborn child. He provided for her needs, covered her nakedness, looked upon her with favor. In verse 6, the Bible says, I passed by you and saw you lying in your blood, and I said, To you as you lay in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you, as you lay in your blood, live. And I made you thrive like plants of the field. You grew up and matured and became beautiful. In verse 8, he says, I passed by you and saw you, and you were indeed at the age for love. So I spread the edge of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I pledged myself to you, entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine. In verse 9, he says, I washed you with water, rinsed off your blood, and anointed you with oil. Now, Paul's selection of that language and that little turn of phrase in Ephesians 5 seems to have the effect of first reminding us, husbands and fathers, of our unique responsibility to hold in high regard the Word of God in our homes. But it's also a reminder to us of how undeserving we are of the great grace that Jesus has shown us. Get back to this business of selfishness. There are times when we deceive ourselves into believing that somehow we deserve better or perhaps that those under our care don't deserve any more or even what they're receiving at the present when in reality we are to model our love after that of Christ who looked upon us in our undeservedness and has lavished us with great grace and mercy. He did this, verse 27 says, to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. 
In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and care for, cares for it just as Christ does for the church. What Paul is saying here is that it is good for you to love your wife. If you have your best interest in mind, you will love your wife well. And this is so often my message to those who come to me in counsel. It will be good for you if you will go home and love your wife well. It will be good for you if you will go home and love your husband well. It will be good for your children if you will go home and love one another well in so many ways. In the last 20 years or so, there's been study after study after, after study demonstrating how positive is, it is to live within a happy marriage and to live within a nuclear family. With the breakdown of the family, there seems to have been greater pains taken to try to look into the effects of that. And what we find is that in terms of your physical health, it's better for you to be happily married within a nuclear family. In terms of the length of your, people who are married and stay married in a nuclear family live longer on average than people who don't have one. People who live within a single marriage and live and do so over the course of their life, uh, people who live within a nuclear family are on average wealthier than people who do not. In every conceivable way, it is better for you, husbands, to love your wives well. And yet, continually, there seems to be this inclination toward buying this counterfeit the world is selling, that somehow your satisfaction, your happiness, is bound up in your hedonistic pursuits of lust and personal satisfaction. Science is now bearing out all of the research shows, and God's Word has said for thousands of years, it is good for you to love your wife well. I would add here, it is good for you to love your husbands well, wives. And I would add even beyond that, that it is best for your children for you to love one another well. The best thing you can do for your kids is to love your spouse with all of your heart. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I, 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 really, I really wish that I, I had a way of communicating such that people would just lay hold of and embrace the concept that when I speak of God's design for marriage and family, I have, I have zero intentions of robbing anyone of their freedoms or of their joys or some perceived satisfaction they may be finding at the present. And every intention of saying to you and to all who will hear that God's design for marriage and family is the best. It always has been and it always will be. It will always work for our good and not against us. And every departure, any and every departure, from God's design for marriage and family will only result in your destruction and your eventual unhappiness. There's just no ifs, ands, or buts about it. There's no, there's no debating this issue. But it's hard to hear, especially when you find yourself in the throes of your own personal lust, 
when you've made your mind up about what the next step is going to look like for you, or you have bought the deceptions of Satan that somehow you cannot find within the context of biblical marriage and family, the satisfaction and pleasure that God intends for you to have. Woe unto us when we break with what God, what God has clearly set forward in his scripture. It's good for us. It's good for us. It is good. So we model our marriage after Jesus's love for the church. Provide and care for her, husbands, because in doing so, you are providing and caring for yourself. Here's the third principle. It's found in uh, chapter 6. Let me say a word about verse 32 before we jump too far ahead. Here the Bible says, the mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. We talked about those responsibilities, love and respect, last Sunday. What Paul is speaking of here is this mystery of two flesh becoming one. God institutes marriage, Adam comes together with Eve, and so two flesh become one. The mystery is profound, he says, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. In the same way that two flesh become one, so too we become one with Jesus when we believe in the gospel. We become one with Christ. So that marriage becomes an illustration for the gospel, and the gospel is illustrated in the covenant of marriage. We, we, when we love one another well, that, that communicates something, especially in the present hour, where marriage is not much celebrated and for the most part understood in this sort of ball and chain imagery. But when we walk together in love, enjoying and finding satisfaction and fulfillment in one another, when we function in a healthy way as a family, that's a powerful, powerful, powerful testimony. And we ought to take the opportunity frequently, as often as we can, to note that those, to those who observe the joy that we find in one another as husbands and wives and as a family, that that joy is firmly rooted in Jesus Christ and what he has done within our family. We ought to be having that kind of kind of conversation within our family. And within the context of our vision and our focus and our want for evangelism within the body, it would be good that we would start with our children and our grandchildren, with our friends and our family, those who have occasion to observe us in our most secret of setting as husbands and wives and parents and children. Now, when you get to chapter 6, there's this deal, deal of uh, parents and, and children. And when you start talking about parents and children, uh, things get a little trickier, right? I, I came to be the pastor of Wake Forest Baptist Church in Sturgis, Mississippi on January the 1st of 2005. Our oldest son was born on February the 7th of 2005. So I had a full one month and six days to know everything about parenting. And then I found out I knew almost nothing about parenting. And just about the time I think I've got it all figured out, they all have birthdays, and the whole game changes again. Or there's some new challenge or obstacle that's introduced. I'm not suggesting this morning that I've got it figured out. I've been around the sun enough times to know that none of you have it figured out. But I, th I think the goal for us ought to be a wrestling with these concepts, a wrestling with these principles, a daily pursuit of implementing these principles within our homes and families. Verse 1 says, children, 
Obey your parents as you would the Lord, because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. Now, I'll say again this week, children, disobeying your parents is not cute. It's not a rite of passage. And, and I'll say this to those of you who are observing parents with disobedient children, it ought not be a source of comedic relief for you either. It is a sin against God who is in heaven, and it ought to be treated as such. Children, obey your parents as you would the Lord, because this is right. And then the commandment from the Ten Commandments is offered in verse 2, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Now, Every time that I read that passage in a corporate setting or preach from this passage or about these issues, I get people who come to me with this question. How can I honor a father and mother who have abused or mistreated me in often horrific ways? And I'm not talking about you didn't get what you wanted to get in the will or you were given a smaller gift than your brother or sister last Christmas. I'm not talking about all that petty junk. I mean, sometimes in horrific ways, sometimes in criminal ways, awful things happening against sons and daughters. Now, my short answer to that question, how you honor a father and mother who have conducted themselves dishonorably is, I don't know. Because there are just so many variables and every situation is different, and I would be happy to sit down and have a fuller, more detailed conversation with you about that. So understand that when I say this morning, when I speak, I'm speaking in very general terms about the call of God on our life to honor our father and mother, and that'll have to be sufficient for the time afforded us today. I, I do want you to note that this is, as the Bible says, the first commandment with promise. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land. And this is not that old joke that's often repeated around my house. I brought you into this world. I can take you out. This is not exactly that, right? This, this is a reference to the covenant bound between God and Israel. Moses brings the law down from Mount Sinai. He does so in order to bind together a covenant relationship between God and his children, the children of Israel. One of the great benefits of that covenant relationship was that Israel would inhabit the land that flowed with milk and honey, the promised land. And, and God warns them, if you disobey, you're going to be cursed. And the chief curse, the ultimate curse, is that they'd be exiled from the land. We see that curse unfold in the Old Testament as Babylon carries the nation of Israel away into Babylonian captivity and exile. What is being cited here is a, is a reference to the fact that the, the family unit, the nuclear family, is the fundamental building block of any society. It's in the nuclear family that there, there's gained an understanding of authority, an understanding of our role within the family, an understanding of our role within society. And apart from the nuclear family, it becomes a very difficult thing for the principles and precepts of God's Word to be taught, to be learned, or to be observed. Now, that is not to say it doesn't happen at times outside of the nuclear family. It happened in my life outside of the nuclear family. But by and large, 
when the family begins to break down, when children are permitted and even encouraged to dishonor their father and mother, what will result is not only the destruction of the family, but the destruction of society in general. What will result is what you have been watching on the 6 o'clock news for the past 12 months or so. That is what happens when, when the family unit begins to break down. And it will continue to happen in our society and in our culture unless or until the family unit is restored and returned to a place of celebration and honor within our culture. It will not go well for you as a people. It will not go well for us as a people if the family is not held in high regard, celebrated often, and if there is no order within the family. You think, you think, you think that you're doing a favor to your children by being their friend. Brothers and sisters, they have friends at school, and they're heathens just like they are. What they need are mothers and fathers, not so much friends. What they need is order and structure in the home. What they need is teaching as to what it looks like and what it means to honor their father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. They need you to be a parent before they need you to be their friend. They have, trust me, they've got friends. They've got friends who need parents too. Honor your mother and father. Honor your, now, now it goes beyond this. And there's a word for parents here beyond that. In verse 4, the Bible says, Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Another translation says, don't exasperate them, but bring, bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Meaning, discipline them. There should be chastisement when there is wrongdoing. But don't be so severe, don't be so overbearing that you do them some harm along the way. I think that this is a mistake that's often made with the first child, right? With the first child, we're going to be perfect parents, and we're going to have perfect children. And then by the second child, we realize that's sort of a lost cause, but we may give it a better go. And, 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 then, and then if you do what we've done, which is to have a child come along in your late 30s, you get really relaxed, right? <laughs> I think we're just too tired. We're just tired. We're just worn out. Discipline them, but don't exasperate them. I, I, I don't really have categories for understanding how this looks or how it plays itself out, but I trust that it does because I hear it often. I share the gospel with people or invite someone to come to a church service and they say things like, my parents made me, they, they browbeat me with religion when I was a child and so now I have no interest in that. I think that can be a cop-out at times, but I hear it far too often for it to be a cop-out in every case. Parents, take caution that you don't exasperate your children. Here's the tricky thing about bringing up children. They're all different. They're all crazy, but they're all crazy in different ways, right? And, and so I've, I hope I've learned the lesson over time, and, and, and I know now in a way that I'm not sure I always did that what works at the Stevens house won't necessarily work at your house because you've got a different set of kids under a different set of circumstances, and sometimes there just has to be a little flexibility there. As a matter of fact, what works with one of my children won't necessarily work with the other one. 
They're just different. We're different people. What's required of us is that we're aware of the danger of exasperating or frustrating our children, and at the same time aware of this great need and responsibility that we have to bring them up in the training and admonition of Jesus. There's a missionary autobiography that I think every dad should read, at least the early chapters. The autobiographer is John G. Patton, who was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands back in that first wave of the modern missions movement. He talks about his childhood uh, at a great length early in the book, and it's incredibly moving. He talks about his father's prayer time and how impactful that was for him. The practice in the Patton home was that they would gather for breakfast, often with the elder Patton gentleman coming to the breakfast table early enough to have nearly completed his meal before the children would arrive, and he would quickly dismiss himself to a prayer closet that they had built on to their small home in their Scottish village. He would go into the prayer closet and pull the door behind him, and he would begin to pray exuberantly with excitement, with gladness of heart. He would share fellowship with God. And, and the younger Patton would talk about how he and his siblings and their mother would be so anxious to join together with Mr. Patton in his worship and his prayer and his fellowship with Jesus that they would gobble down their breakfast and they would stand anxiously outside that closed door until Mr. Patton at last would conclude his personal prayers and open the door to allow the family to join him in the worship of Jesus. Daddies, that's what it ought to look like. Later in his life, he comes back, he served on the field and came back after the death of his parents and was walking that Scottish village and he encountered a much older woman who recognized him, although he did not recognize her. She had been a woman in the village of ill repute in his childhood. She explained to John Patton that she was converted, bowing below the window of that prayer room, listening to his daddy pray for her salvation. Daddies, that's what it ought to look like. A warm-hearted joy in Jesus that is not drudgery for our children, but they would stand anxiously waiting outside the prayer closet to join us in the fellowship that we enjoy in Christ. We have a great responsibility. A great responsibility. Now, I, I don't know anything that brings me lower, that creates in me a sense of godly sorrow than reflecting on my own shortcomings with regards to marriage and family. That there's nothing that pierces me more sharply than the thoughts of my own failures with regards to marriage and family. And I suspect the same is true for many of you here this morning. My counsel to you is to run quickly to the all-sufficient grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who forgives and cleanses us of all unrighteousness. And in addition to that, he imparts to us a portion of his Holy Spirit sufficient to do the very things he requires of us. Do you know that when God makes a commandment, he provides us with all of the necessary resources to see it through? See, there's power in what he requires of us. 
not only in that it's truth and it's binding and it's eternal, the word of God abides forever, but implicit in the command is the power itself to see it through. You need only this morning to come to Christ, come to Christ, come to him, come to him, come to him. We talked last week about a line in the sand moment. We're going to do it differently from this day forward. It's never going to be the same as it's been in times past. This far and no further, Satan. I'm walking with Jesus for the duration of my life. Eventually, one day, one day, one day, you're going to have to make that determination regarding your marriage and your family and the children God has entrusted to you. Or, or sacrifice them on the altar of your selfishness, your stubbornness, and your unwillingness to yield to the Lordship of Jesus over your life. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for your word and for its instruction. God, I, I, I pray that what has been heard has been both conviction and kindness I pray that you would help us to have that tone as we talk about marriage and family issues. I, I was reminded this week of how easy it is to make a lie sound like love, to speak the truth in anger through our teeth, but it's a difficult thing to speak the truth in love. I pray that your word would be heard, received, and further proclaimed in just that way. I pray, God, that you would bring conviction to the hearts of those gathered here where there be any shortcoming, God. I, I pray that you would break our hearts, help us to discern well our need for grace and forgiveness. I pray, God, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and help us in our marriages and our families to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. In Christ's name and for his glory, amen and amen.